Our scripture this morning is 2 Peter one nineteen verses 2-1. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. But false prophets also also arose among the people, just as there were false... Just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. All right. Hello again. (laughs) Nice. I love it. Um, Okay. So the the language in this passage, it's suddenly you may have noticed he's talking all normal um, at first. And he's just teaching them some things, and then suddenly it sort of crescendos, and it gets bigger and bigger, and it gets very poetic. And it's sort of like he begins to talk in these huge metaphors. Um, Like he has something really, really important to say, and it's so important that he can't even say it normally. And that he he just starts talking like, morning star rises in your hearts, just like this huge, sort of passionate, poetic moment. Um, And so we're going to unpack some of this this morning. There's, I, I don't... I never know how long I want to spend in like one verse. I'm just going to hit the main idea of kind of what he's saying. There's plenty of commentaries out there which you guys should honestly be reading and diving into and studying more. Um, if you want to know more about passages, don't just look at, that's what Tommy said, that's what it means. There's a lot more to everything. Um, and so I'm going to this morning talk about um, a couple of the main things that he says here. Mainly... Um, one of the pro- some of the problems that I've seen in, in sort of the modern day church with the introduction of, of honestly, the internet, what the internet's done sort of to the church and everyone having a voice and how some voices are very, very loud. Um, and so we're going to talk about some of the things he says here about the idea of, of heresy. We're going to talk about false prophets. We're going to talk about some of this stuff. Now, um, imagine with me that you are walking down a road. And I'm giving you directions, and I'm going to say, hey, so you're going to go, you're going to go travel this way. And you're going to get to this one place. When you get there, do not turn right. There's this danger, and this danger, and this danger, and this danger. Do not turn right. Okay? That doesn't mean when you get there, you're supposed to turn left and go that way. It just means don't turn right. And I say that because sometimes when someone is teaching something, and they say, don't do this, people think they're saying, do the opposite. And they're not. Sometimes we're just saying, literally, just don't do this. Other times we'll talk about this over here, but today we're focusing on this. So this is kind of what it is today. I'm going to ask you to listen to what I am saying and try not to listen to what I'm not saying. You know what I mean? It's hard to explain that. But sometimes you say one thing and some people just decide to run the opposite direction. But no, let's just be pretty moderate here. Let's just stay centered. Um, And I'm going to give some warnings for one direction today. Um, isn't Isn't that a group, like a boy band? Um, I will warn you about One Direction, too. (laughs) My goodness. Okay. Uh, Let's pray, and let's dive into this. Father, we love you, and uh, we come here today as your body, and we we exercise worship, and we uh, ask you for the strength and the will to do what we need to do in our city. We we come here to be filled, and we come here to be nourished, and, and to nourish each other. 
to speak words of encouragement to each other, to hear words of encouragement from, from each other, um, to confess, to pray, to take communion, to sing. All of these things are here for the edification of, of your body. And so I pray that this time now would be for the edification of your body as well. Speak through me. Help me to remember the things that I've studied. Um, <clears throat> and uh, let us all learn from each other and grow. Thank you. In your name. Amen. So... Oh, I'm going to start right here in verse 20. Um, he says, Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. I actually should have put verse 21 as well. Actually, let me, let me just back this up so we can see it. Um, oh, verse 20. Knowing this, first that of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, that's singular, but men, plural, spoke from God as, <clears throat> as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So, um, if you'll remember back before a baptismal service, I taught about sort of the reasons why um, I personally believe. And some of the things that have really shocked me. A, a lot of people believe for different reasons. Some have had profound experiences. I haven't. God's given me other reasons to believe. Um, intellectual reasons, um, historical reasons, um, things that I feel passionately about. And one of the things that Peter says is it wasn't, it's not just him saying this. He hearkens back to an event where several of them were there and they saw it. And then I talked about how there's a whole group of apostles that that traveled and they spread out around the world and they did all kinds of amazing things and they all died terrible deaths because of what they saw. And so it was a group. It's never just one person. And so if I may fast forward here again, back to where we are. So when he says this, knowing first of all that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, scholars tell us that what he's basically saying here is it's not about one person showing up and saying... Here's something I learned. Whenever somebody goes into the desert and comes back from the desert and says, I met God there and he gave me this brand new idea that nobody's ever heard before. And here it is. Don't believe that guy. Um, Because the scriptures are not this thing that came from one particular person. It's the Bible is a communal book. It's written by tons of authors. It is written by tons of people who knew God, walked with God. It's written by people who knew Jesus, walked with Jesus. Um, and so what scholars tell us that he's basically pointing to here is that it's not just one person saying something. This is a communal thing. We had this experience, lots of us. And he's also um, sort of getting them to take a second look at the things that are happening in their church. Again, this letter was written to a church in which false prophets, he calls them, are coming into the church and saying... I heard from God, and this is what he said to me. And they're teaching something brand new that nobody's ever heard. And it's just one person at a time. And Paul says, that's not how this works. The Bible has never been this one-person thing. It's always been a communal thing. It's written from communities to communities. It's, um, I mean, if you, if you think back to, uh, we all, I mean, we live in a day, a day where our, our idea of this is all skewed. We talk a lot about personal relationship with God, and it's very important. But we live in an age where you can have a personal walk with God with your own personal Bible. And so many different ways to study the Bible on your own. But 500 years ago, this didn't exist. The printing press was invented during the Elizabethan period, like 15, uh, the 15th century early to mid-1400s, and that's when people started actually getting copies of the Bible on their own. Before that, especially in Jesus' day, um, there was these guys called scribes. Whenever you read the word scribe in scriptures, it's happening again. Give me a second. Let me tighten that. I think we're good to go. Uh, oh, 
Okay, whenever you hear about scribes in scriptures, these are the guys who sat there all day with paper and pen and quill, um, and they would turn a book of the scripture and they would write. Next, and they would write. And they would just copy the Bible. They would just copy the Old Testament, um, the book of Isaiah. And there's not an instance in scripture where one person is sitting there studying the Bible on their own, except for an Ethiopian eunuch on the side of the road. And if you know anything about this, um, a eunuch was basically someone who became a eunuch so that they could take, take care and take watch over the king's harem, if you will. And so he was either going to... He either went and purchased that, he was reading the, the book of Isaiah. He either went and purchased that scroll and was taking it back to the king who would be very rich, or he was delivering it to another place, to another rich person, or he had stolen it from the king. But there's no way the average person could get their hands on scripture. They went to the temple to read it. They would gather regularly in the temple or in the synagogue, and they would hear the scriptures taught. And they would, someone would read a passage of scripture and it would be on a scroll and, and on, the, on the stand and the people would get up and they would all offer different interpretations on it. And they would all say, I think it means this. I hear this. I think God is doing this. If you compare that with what David said, I, I believe he's, this is an attribute of God. And this is how it would work. Um, only the richest of the rich would have a copy of the scriptures. And any time you ever heard the scriptures read aloud, it would be in a group. Never on your own. And so there's actually a passage where Jesus actually says, where two or more are gathered, the Spirit of God is there with them. And usually we only quote this passage of Scripture when two people show up. Um, but nevertheless, the reason, people, the reason Jesus actually said this is because um, it was a regular practice for people to hear the Scripture read, to break up into groups of two or three, and to debate what is, what is happening there, to talk to each other about the meaning of it all. And Jesus says, this is how it works. It, it's communal. And when you do this, when you get together and you talk about the scriptures and you search for meaning within them, the spirit of God is there and guiding you. There's actually churches today that, that won't let their, their people gather in small groups um, because they're afraid that someone's going to teach something heretical or someone's going to teach something that's going to go against the overall teaching of that their particular church Holds And so they say, well, we we're not going to have small groups and protect from that. And so we're going to keep a lockdown on the teachings of the scriptures. Um, but Jesus actually said, well, when they do that, though, the spirit of God's there. And he's going to be working. And it was a very important thing that they used to do. Um, and so the reason this is important is because it actually, when you read the scriptures communally, it actually um, keeps people from going awry. Um, the group and the spirit leading the group and the conversation actually reveals things from different people, the way that, that they see God, the ways, the, the gifts and abilities and talents that they have and they hear from God and they talk, well, here's what God's done in my life. Well, here's what God's done in my life. And we come to get a fuller picture of who God is and ourselves. You can't even see yourself the way other people see you. And the way people see that God needs to work in your heart, unless you gather in a group. It's a much more accurate way to study the scriptures. And so this communal thing is very important. Now, when I was a kid, um, I saw this sort of Walt Disney short movie film. It was about, uh, here it is right here, four, four artists paint one tree. Have you ever seen this? Um, no. Okay. So it's, um, it was sort of, a, it's sort of for an art class. And um, 
it's, it's all about, well, it's, it's really all about the makers of, it was, it was made when they were making the film Cinderella, and the different artists would have, all, there was four main artists that drew, that drew this whole movie, and they would have different ways of drawing Cinderella. Some of them would draw her more beautifully, some more Victorian, some a little more like modern of the day. Um, and it, it was never about picking the one that looked best. It was about picking the one that worked best for the story and, and motion and what they were doing. And it fit best into the setting and the style of movie that they were drawing. Now, um, this is really important to, to understand because each of these artists had their own completely different way of drawing. They did their own completely different style. But when they came together, they had to exercise humility and put aside some of their sort of ideas about exactly how things should be done and sort of scale that back a little bit and submit to each other in order to create a story that kind of worked together. And so you would never know that different artists were actually drawing this because there's this unified thing that they are all getting behind. Okay, now, later on in the movie, about 15, it's about, 20, it's about a 15-minute movie, and so about halfway through, the artists take this sort of day off, and it's a Saturday, they go, and they all gather around this tree, and the whole point of this was, the, it was that Walt Disney wants to sort of show off how they all have the completely, this completely different way of looking at everything and drawing everything. And the four artists sort of look at this tree, and they gather around um, this tree from different angles, and they all decide to paint this tree. Um, the first guy who paints, um, his name is, is Walt Paragoy, and the thing that he focuses on is engineering. He's got an engineer's mind, and so he believes that, that, that the tree should be painted with these thick, sort of straight, architectural kind of lines, sort of um, almost like a, like a turn-of-the-century modern kind of look. It, and it's the way that he draws, is he's, it's all about strength. It's a tree. It's holding up all of this weight, and during the winter, it holds up snow and it holds up against the wind and so it's this brilliant piece of architecture and so this is the way that he draws in these thick straight lines um, with a a moderately thick brush and so the next guy his name is Josh Meadow um, he says this he says the tree is a living thing it's alive it's breathing and it's growing and it's full of personality it's this um, he, he, he at one point he actually talks about how it's kind of a spiritual thing it's alive it's got personality and he, when he paints it, he actually decides that he wants to capture the emotions that he, that he captures when he first sees it. He wants to capture that. And so he takes the thinnest paint that he has and he mixes um, lighter fluid with it because lighter fluid dries really fast if you ever spilled it. And so then when he goes to paint these things, they kind of drip down and it dries instantly. And so he's trying to capture the first impression that he had of the tree because it, he feels like that's the most, it's this stunning, most beautiful moment when you see something for the first time. And that's what he's trying to capture and keep that forever. Now, um, the third guy, his name is Ivan Earl, and he, um, his, his idea of the tree is all about richness and variety. Um, and so he says there's so many different pieces to this tree and so many different ways of looking at it, so many things you could focus on that he is just going to focus on the most important thing that he sees, which is the trunk. And so he decides he's just going to paint the trunk of the tree. And so he spends a good like two or three hours just focusing on this one part of the tree because it's the part that everything kind of comes from. And so he just focuses on that. The, um, the fourth guy, his name is Mark Davis, and he focuses on, um, he steps back and he sees the whole tree is this huge thing that comes from one particular place. And it's, it's one seed that went into the ground, and out of this, it goes and it explodes outwards and expands and covers everything that it comes near. 
And so he paints this sort of three-dimensional thing. Some of the branches are moving away, some are coming towards, and some are, they're all spreading out and covering this vast area, and it affects everything around it because of the place that it was planted. And so each one of these artists focuses on this completely different aspect of this tree. And their four paintings, when they are done, all look completely different. But it's the same tree. This is very much kind of how the church is. We're all focused on one thing, Jesus. That is the center of everything that we are doing. That's why we sang a song this morning that talked about, uh, it's sort of a quote of of Ephesians, uh, the end of Ephesians where it says, everything in the church is pointed to Jesus, in him, through him, all of it. It's all about Jesus because Jesus is the hope that we have. And so um, when we come together, It's sort of like all these different artists looking at one thing, and when we paint it, it all kind of feels and looks different. We all kind of see something different that that God wants us individually to see. Um, We're all parts of the whole. We all bring a different viewpoint like the artists. And some are going to focus on the power and the might of God. Some are going to focus on the central trunk that is the incarnation of God coming into this world um, through his birth. Some are going to focus on his sacrifice. Some are going to focus on his, his resurrection. But we're all focusing on the same thing. And the chief illustrator of the movie, Cinderella, actually says this. No one has things, no one has things entirely on his own way. But in the end, the result is better than any of us could have achieved alone. It's not a matter of picking out the best drawing. It's about picking out the drawing that would look best in motion. And I love that. That's, that's to me, that's, I mean, it, the metaphor can break down a little bit as you kind of look at that, but I, I like that. It's this humility. We know things about God and we come into the group and those things that we particularly focus on um, we can talk about them. We don't use them to separate ourselves, and, and we focus on the central thing. Um, so, with all that being said, it's all about community. It's all about the body of Christ coming together. And so Peter goes a little farther here, and I want you to try to ignore the chapter break between chapter 1 and chapter 2. Remember, these were also added during about the 5th century, these chapter breaks. Um, they're not original, um, and it kind of sometimes it breaks the flow of thought. And so we're going to read 21 right into 1. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Now, so he says two things. He says false prophets have arisen any time the... the people of God have come together. There's always been, throughout every point in history, false teachers that have risen up. It's always happened. And he says, false teachers always will arise. They will come into your church. They have come into your church. They will come into your church. And he wants you to be aware of that, that they will be there. And he says, they're going to teach destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. Now, um, probably over the next couple of weeks, I'm going to go into more how to, you know, false prophets, uh, how the destruction works, what they do actually to a community and how they work and how you can recognize people teaching false things. But um, I want to focus on something, I guess we'll do a little house cleaning, Christian Christianity house cleaning today, if you will. Um, because one of the things that I've noticed that's been particularly concerning to me over the last real decade, decade and a half, is with the rise of everyone having a voice through blogs and Twitter and Facebook, we all have an opinion on everything. And I've noticed 
the usage of the word heresy has just gone through the roof. It's gone higher and higher and higher. Um, and mostly on, on you know, blogs. And I've heard pastors affectionately call bloggers the pajama hadin. Um, sort, of, sort of like they, all, they, just, they just, in their pajamas, just destroying people all day on their blogs. Oh, this guy's a heretic for this reason. This guy's a heretic for this reason. Now, so this morning I want to talk about heresy, what it is. I've actually never talked about heresy. Um, I've never talked about how to recognize it. I've never talked to you guys about, I don't think, about what is and what is not heresy. What is the definition of all of this? So, um, why don't we... Well, first off, I mean, if you can point out a pastor or an author or a theologian, I could point to someone calling them a heretic. Um, I've heard everyone from Billy Graham to C.S. Lewis to Rick Warren called heretics. All of it. I myself, I put out an album last year, last summer, and there was a song that we sing here called Come Down Father where I talk about God coming to us like a, like a, um, a frost. Like, well, I wrote it down because I don't remember my own songs, how they go. Uh, like water poured on a flower and sunlight melting the frost. And there was a, there was a blogger who reviews records and he's a Christian blogger. And he, uh, he reviewed the record and he basically called me a heretic and said, well, this is modalism and blah, 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 blah. The guy apparently is metaphorically inept. He, he can't understand metaphors. Um, and um, I'm sure he's the life of the party everywhere he goes, but <laughs> he called me a heretic. And I was like, bro, I, I do not think that word means what you think it means. Um, and so we had words and it was fun. Um, but let's define heresy the right way, shall we? Um, the word used here for heresy is and, and heretic, the word, is, the word is heresis, and it simply means sect. It comes from um, another Greek word, which is heresthai, which means to choose. Now, originally, this was not a negative word. Um, back in the times of Christ, it was a normal word to describe sects or teams or different modes of thinking. Um, there was, if you were a Platonist, uh, you, you, were, you held the heresy of Plato, the belief that you were a sect, part of the sect of Plato. If you were a Gnostic, you believed in the her- heresy of Gnosticism. Um, and then there's the heresy of Judaism. And there's all these different heresies within du- Judaism, which were different ideas about how to understand Yahweh God. Now, um, it was not even... Um, it, it, was, it was not... Well, it, it, was, it was actually pretty normal for... Um, like a group of doctors who practice different kinds of medicine to say, like, well, his heresy is this, his heresy is this. It's sort of like vaxxers and anti-vaxxers, um, two different heresies. That's basically the way you think. It's just two modes of thinking. That's how it used to be. That's how the word was originally used and invented and intended to be used. Um, now, things changed. There's a part of scriptures right around 1 Corinthians chapter 11 where Paul is... Um, addressing some things in the church, and this idea takes on a negative turn. And in Christianity in general, among the work of the apostles, heresy became a negative idea, and for good reason. We're going to talk about why and how this happened. But um, basically, um, Paul links it to what he calls schisma or schisms in the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Um, and he always links whenever a schism happens in the church, it, it, like a breakup in the church, a church falls apart and, and breaks, it happens because of heresies, because of sects, because of different ideas in the church. And so the apostles believed we had to be unified about the things that we teach about Christ so that people are not led astray. Now, 
A really interesting thing is um, all of this changed. The ideas of heresy took on a negative connotation with the work of Jesus. Because, believe it or not, before Jesus, it was perfectly fine to have different ways of thinking about God in Judaism. There were Essenes, there were Zealots, there were Pharisees, Sadducees, all these different ways of looking at God, and it was perfectly acceptable. And so Judaism was not this unified idea, it was this very wide kind of thing, and it was all of these different ways of thinking, and it was okay. Um, there's one point where actually the Pharisees actually asked Jesus, um, you know, basically, who taught you? Where did you gain your knowledge? And he says, where did John gain his? Gain his? And basically he's saying that we had the same teacher. Um, and so they're basically what they're asking him is, what school of thought do you follow? And so basically, what heresy do you follow? And it was perfectly fine in those days for people to have all these different ideas of God. But with the introduction of Jesus, of God incarnate into this world, all of this changed. Suddenly, we could understand who God was and what we were doing here and what this was all about. And so it suddenly was not okay to have all these different ideas of who God was, but we all had to unify around one particular idea. And it wasn't a whole bunch of things. It was actually only a few things. It was not this overwhelming kind of thing. It was about Jesus, and it was about a few different attributes of Jesus. Um, And so with the introduction of Jesus into the world, we gain knowledge about who God is. And Jesus even said, if you want to know the Father, you look at me. There's no reason to be separate anymore. We can come together as the people of God and we can be unified behind one idea that will change everything in the end. Now, um, so how is the word heretic to be used? The word heresy, how should it be used? There's two ways that this word should be used. Sparingly and accurately, okay? Um, That's it. Like sparingly and accurately. And so... Uh, accurately, what does that mean? So there's, there's basically three types of error that people make when they are um, declaring doctrines. Um, and the first type of error that people make is they make an error that directly contradicts a fundamental belief. Um, basically, uh, an example of that would be teaching something like that Jesus is not divine. Well, that goes against exactly what the apostles believed and taught. That would be heresy. Um, another error people make is that they make an error that indirectly contradicts a fundamental belief. This is kind of an accidental heresy, if you will. Um, it's basically kind of something like teaching, something like, um, well, God causes suffering in the world. Well, basically, when you say that, you're saying God is not good, God is not loving, and that would be considered heresy um, because it indirectly goes against something that is normal orthodoxy. Now, um, the third way people make errors is they make an error beyond a fundamental belief. And basically, this would be adding to the ideas of us being reconciled with God. Basically, if someone says something like, well, you have to be baptized um, to be accepted by God, to be reconciled with God, that's heresy. It's just not true. You're adding something that is just simply not what the apostles believed or taught and you're pulling it from somewhere in scriptures where you're making it say with that, but that's not what the apostles believed and taught historically. And we know this. Um, or saying that you have to speak in tongues um, to be a Christian. It's, none of this is true. That's heresy. That's adding to the scriptures, and it, it, 
Um, it pulls the rug out from under these orthodox ideas. Um, now, most of the time when people are making errors and they're, they're declaring somebody, especially today, when they're saying, that guy's a heretic, that guy's a heretic, that guy's a heretic, um, basically what we're actually declaring heresy is, is actually in reality probably heterodoxy. Heterodoxy and heresy are not the same thing. Heterodoxy is a belief that diverges from a commonly accepted teaching. Um, heterodoxy does not make you not a Christian. It can make you wrong. It can make you um, just, it can make, make people just say, well, you're crazy, and that's wrong, and I'm not going to listen to you anymore, and you can isolate yourself. But, that, that's not, but it's not, it doesn't necessarily make you not a Christian. And so whether or not you baptize people 12 times forwards or one times backwards or upside down from a plane, um, some of these could be wrong, but they're not heresy. All right? Now, um, so there's an article actually that came out last month, and it was surprisingly good. And it was in, it was in actually uh, Christianity Today, and it was called Think Inside the Box. You should find it. You should read it um, because it lays out a lot of this stuff. But it was, it was written by a guy named Justin Holcomb. And basically, um, here's how he kind of sums up. He says, the sum of what Christians believe is not identical to the essentials that we must believe. Christians believe lots of things. A lot of really weird Christians believe a lot of really weird things. We're probably some of those weird Christians. Um, and there's lots of different ideas about lots of stuff in scriptures. But the sum of everything that Christians believe is not identical to the, the, the things, the few things that Christians must believe to be called Christians. So, um, the question arises, well, well, that's great, but what are we supposed to believe then? And how do we know? What is it? Is there an essential list somewhere of things that we should know and that we should, we should take inside of us and that we should run with? Yes, there is. Thank you for asking. Um, now, one of the ways that the... Hold on. I got way ahead of my notes here. Uh, okay. So the early church under the apostles' teaching, so the early church, the people who walked with Jesus were planting these churches for decades. And they were in these churches and they were teaching all of these things that the people should know. And one of the ways that the apostles themselves, the people who knew Jesus, the, one of the ways that they um, battled against heresies was through these things they called creeds. Now, um, the earliest of, of Christian creeds uh, were, were incredibly simple. They weren't complicated. One of them is actually Paul, uh, when he was Saul, he's persecuting and killing Christians. He's on his way to Damascus. Um, God knocks him off his horse and says, hey, uh, donkey, I'm not sure. Knocks him off of it and blinds him and says, hey, um, you're gonna, you work for me now. And so he becomes Paul. He spends some time with some early Christians. And here's what he says in 1 Corinthians. Um, he passes on one of the creeds he learned from those early Christians. He says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Basically, um, Christ lived, he taught, he died, he rose again, and appeared to a whole bunch of us. This was the earliest possible creed. Now, a little later, these people were coming in, um, teaching heresies, going against some of the things the apostles were teaching, and so the sort of disciples of the apostles put together um, uh, another creed, sort of simplifying it, um, their main teachings, and it was called the rule of faith. 
And later on, this rule of faith was even simplified down to a simple creed called the Apostles' Creed. Um, There's another version of it called the Nicene Creed. They're incredibly similar. Um, Here's the Apostles' Creed right here. It says this, I believe in God, the Father, the Almighty, the Creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His Holy Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended, he descended to the dead. On the third day, He rose again. He ascended to heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Universal Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. So, Rule of thumb, if you can say this without crossing your fingers, you're a Christian. If, if somebody is teaching something that you disagree with, even if it's vehemently, even if you think it's dangerous, um, if they're not teaching outside of the bounds of this, then they're actually your brother and sister in Christ. And you can go to them, you can talk to them, have a relationship with them, and you can sharpen each other. You can call them to change because they're teaching heterodoxy, but they're not a heretic. This is actually a very wide-ranging thing. Notice, there is nothing in this creed about denominational differences. There's nothing about pedo-baptism, transubstantiation, perpetual virginity of Mary. There's nothing in there about any of it. There's nothing about um, hell, creationism, evolutionism, traditional marriage, just war, pacifism, egalitarianism, Political parties, sprinkling, immersion, predestination, the rapture, socialism, capitalism, faith healing, Oprah Winfrey Network, nothing. (laughs) There's nothing about any of this. And so Christianity is actually a very wide thing around the world. And so I guess I'm calling us to a little more humility and a little more unity. There is, historically there has been this sort of motto that Christians have always used. Um, Let's see, where did I write it down at? Hold on. Okay. Historically, what Christians have said is, in the essentials, unity. In the non-essentials, liberty and grace. In all things, love. And we come together with these different views, and we worship Jesus together. Now, um, there have historically been lots of heresies that have risen up and have been driven out of the church. Lots of them. Um, the Jehovah's Witness were separated from Christianity for teaching that Jesus became God, that he wasn't God at first. Um, the Mormons were separated from, from Christianity because they believed that um, Jesus was less than God and that he was a created being that was used to create the world. And so historically there have been these times where we've said you are out of bounds. But um, much of what we declare, are, declare in, in the church abroad today in America, you look at that and you say, well, that guy wrote this book and he believes this. And I don't believe that. He's a, he's a heretic. He's a false prophet. The fact is, it's probably not true. And so, again, I'm telling you this not to say go left and say everything is right. I'm saying, be careful of going this direction. Have a little bit of humility. Keep the path. I'm not saying run that direction. I'm saying don't run this direction. Please. It's how churches break up. It's how we ended up with 41,000 Protestant denominations. 
That's a huge number. That's a huge number. Now, there's another quote by, uh, by in this... Um, Again, you need to find this Christianity Today article and read it. Uh, it's by Justin Holcomb, and he says this. Um, uh, where are we at? Okay. The creeds are the bare-bones structure, the outlines of the sketch, the confessions and statements of faith, color in the picture. So he says, basically, like, it's, it's sort of like the tree. Christianity is the tree, and we all kind of come at it, and we look at it from different sides, and we paint it in. And it's actually quite beautiful. There are, you know, confessions like the Westminster Confession of Faith. It's this beautiful historic thing and people disagree with it, but it's, it's important. Um, and then there's, you know, we are ourselves have a statement of faith, things we hold to, but if, if you don't fully agree with our statement of faith, we're still worship with you. I mean, come on. You're a follower of Jesus and we are in this together. All right. Um, Richard Rohr actually talks about our beliefs and he says our beliefs are important, not just so that they can know but so that they can follow. Not just so that they can believe, but so that they can be transformed. Not just so that they can have a religion, but so that they can have a union. Beliefs shape how we think about God and therefore how we interact with the world around us. And the things that we believe are very important. And so the main things I think we need to take away from this are belief is found in, first off, the teachings of Christ need to be done in community with other people. When you isolate yourself from the body of Christ and you get off on your own and you start reading, there's nobody to double check what you're doing and to talk to you about whether or not you are an error, heterodoxy, or whether or not you're launching into heresy. Um, It's dangerous. You need to be with other people, other Christians, learning about God, worshiping. You need to hear what people have to say. To sharpen yourself, to defend against dangers in the church, or to encourage the really good things that are happening. I think there's a lot of really good things happening in the church today. Not just our church, but the church in America at large. I think things are changing, and, and I think it's good. I think it's amazing. And so I'm encouraged. I want to encourage you to exercise humility and unity and grace and disagree in a loving way and call people back to the central thing all the time. Can we try that? Can we do that? So we're going to take communion. The communion is, um, to me, it's the symbol that unifies all of us. It's, uh, it's, it's the bread, that, which is, represents the body of Christ broken for us. It's the wine, which represents the blood of Christ spilled for us. Jesus was poured out. He poured himself out for the salvation of the world. And so our communion servers, you guys can go ahead and, uh, and get the elements and kind of spread around the room. We take communion every single week. We remind ourselves Um, that it's through the sacrifice of God incarnate, Jesus himself, through his death, his burial, and his resurrection, that we find hope, that we find forgiveness, that we find salvation and new life. And And so we go from here, we launch out into our city, and we proclaim this to people, that, hey, there is love, there is hope, there is forgiveness. It is being offered to you. And it will bring about resurrection in every area of your life and in this world. So... Let's take some time and let's pray. And then let's uh, take communion. Father, we love you. Thank you for everything you were doing with us. Make us humble. Make us unified. Um, Help your church heal. Help your church to stop shooting at each other. Instead, bathe each other in worship and love and, um, and healing. Keep us focused on the center thing, which is you your son Jesus and the sacrifice that was made for us, the teachings that were taught for us, the resurrection that was done for us. 
so that we could find our own resurrection. Thank you, Father. Make us more like you every day, every time we get together in your name. Amen. Take some time.